Hello, welcome to season three of the Pictures Out There podcast series, Teddy Roosevelt, Kurt Vonnegut, The Second Amendment, James Madison, the U.S. Congress, the National Institute of Health, and more are discussed today. And now, here's Dave and Lee. Well, hello. Thank you for that kind introduction, Candy, and welcome to the Pictures Out There podcast series. This is Dave. And this is Lee. And here we are, season three and chat number six. Chat six. Yeah. So anyway, our, our standard welcome to our present day audience. To, hello. Hello, hello. Our audiences in the future, wherever and whenever that may be. Our AI audience, mm-hmm. present and future, and aliens. We know you're there. And <laughs> we, we hope you're listening. And we know you're listening. <laughs> so welcome to all of you. We're very glad to have you here, and thanks for joining us. And so, as we always do with hope and optimism in mind, we ask, what are your ideals? What are your pictures? Let's begin with a quotation from a fellow perhaps you've heard of, Teddy <laughs> Roosevelt, President of the United States, about 125 years ago now from where we are in 2023. He stated... Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. I love this quote, Lee, because the imagery of Teddy Roosevelt, we always seemed like a super competitive guy. Yes. And maybe he was more ambitious than competitive. Perhaps. And very interesting that he would be the source of that quote that would basically be saying, don't go do a bunch of comparisons. Yeah, because it will take the joy from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we did have a thought here that comparing and contrasting, that's a little bit different. Lee, I know you've probably seen these these situations where you have these two very complicated pictures that are set up. And, you know, the idea gets to be, well, there's one thing in these pictures that's different. Oh, yeah, find it. And it takes you 10 minutes yeah. to oh, try to... the woman's to, nose. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, or there's some little thing buried in a far corner right. of one picture that's not in the other one. And we just thought that was an interesting way to kind of think of human beings. Yes. And we've talked about the fact that we have all these commonalities among us and between us, but then we have things that are very unique. It's both. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. So I think I have mentioned in previous podcasts that I am an educator, and that's relevant here because... How frequently do I give students assignments to say, please compare and contrast (laughs) this article to this article, this perspective on a topic versus this conflicting, contradictory, uh, different perspective on a topic. So that compare and contrast thing, we can make light of it, but it's actually very, very powerful because it helps you see both the commonalities and the uniqueness. And I would tell you, Professor, that when I've been in school and had that assignment, that was actually not one of my favorite things to go do, <laughs> just as a student trying yes. to get a grade. But it, it is fosters ab- critical it, thinking because it, it forces you, if I may use that phrase, yeah. to, okay, what's common here? Yes. And what is unique here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since one of our ideals is we're the same and we're unique, I guess I ought to probably like that exercise a lot more. I'll give you an assignment later. (laughs) So let's turn our attention now to a life tool of accessing our variety of gifts and talents. Here is a quote to begin this discussion from writer Kurt Vonnegut. He wrote, quote, go into the arts. I'm not kidding. The arts are not a way to make a living. They are a very human way to make life more bearable. Practicing an art 
no matter how well or how badly? Is it a way to make your soul grow for heaven's sake? Sing in the shower, dance to the radio, tell stories, write a poem to a friend, even a lousy poem. Do it as well as you possibly can. You will get an enormous reward. You will have created something. And, end quote, we would say further something that's unique and yours. Right, so we have we have somebody who is recognized as one of the great writers of the last hundred years. Yes. And he's saying just everybody should do this. Everybody should do this. And don't hold yourself to a standard of quality. Hmm. If it's a bad poem, it's still your poem. He's saying, by the way, I have a drawer full of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's saying, don't compare. Right. Go, go access your gifts and talents. Yes. Go at, wh- however good or bad they are. Yes. And so one of our, one of our big life tools is saying that everybody has gifts, talents, abilities. The door is open. Go explore what yours are. Don't let anybody tell you, right. well, you're not as good as so-and-so. Right. It's something. Yeah. No. This is a way to celebrate your uniqueness. Exactly. Yes. And your humanity. Okay. So we're going to move on now toward a couple of topics that are going to be the the meat, I guess you would say, of, of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be getting into some topics that relate to the picture that we've talked about before of minimizing violence. And we're going to get into the topic of life expectancy, which I guess kind of relates to mm-hmm. everything, right? It sure does. <laughs> it's a little hard to little hard to talk about anything if we're not here. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's just say you have my attention when you're starting to talk about life expectancy. Yeah. yeah. We're going to just hit on a couple of points about each of those. And it's some history mm-hmm. and some facts yes. on these two big and complex issues. And they're things... That I would tell you, I didn't know. I think some of the things we're going to cover, Lee, you probably do know. Perhaps. As a historian. They were surprising things to me. They were things I didn't know. And so, you know, the question then begets, do these very compelling new things, these new facts, do they change what's compelling, simple, and wise? Oh, there's that simple to complex to simple. There it is again. To be wise thing again. Uh, about these complicated issues. So we're going to go bat these things around. You make of them what you want. Yeah, make your own linkages. It's always a good thing to go, what's really going on here? Yes. And what are we actually trying to do? What's the simple thing as a society we're trying to do with these issues? Okay. good. These topics that we're going to talk about, I'm very optimistic about and hopeful about because they can be changed. They can be different tomorrow as we always say with our pictures and ideals fueled with hope and optimism. So let's talk about gun control and the Second Amendment. So the Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America states, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that is from constitution.congress.gov which we would regard as a reasonably reliable source. So, And now all of the things we're going to reference are from this same site. Are from the same site. So our, our point there is if you'd like to go look this up for yourselves, please do. It's very, very educational. And it's also our way of saying we're not monkeying with the facts here. Exactly. Okay? That's precisely what the United States Constitution's Second Amendment states. So historical surveys of the Second Amendment often trace its roots at least in part, through the English Bill of Rights from 1689, which declared that British subjects 
may have arms for the defense suitable to their condition, and that was allowed by law. Now, this legal provision grew out of friction over the English crown's efforts to use loyal militias to control and disarm dissidents and enhance the crown's standing army, among other things, prior to the revolution that supplanted King James II in favor of William and Mary. So, if we break this down into plain English, it sounds like the original roots of the Second Amendment come from the notion of using loyal militias to protect a monarchy. Is that the way you Uh, read that? We start getting this use of a local, or we might say in American parlance, a state armed force. Yes. And how that's going to interact with a national or monarchy or federal force. Yeah, yes. That seems to be the yeah. that seems to be the starting point for Yes. This. Okay, we'll move along here. The early American experience with militias and military authority would inform what would become the Second Amendment as well. In founding era America, citizen militias drawn from the local community existed to provide for the common defense, and standing armies of professional soldiers were viewed by some with suspicion. The Declaration of Independence listed his grievances against King George III that he had affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power and had kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. So it sounds like the original roots of the Second Amendment, again, are coming from this notion of using loyal militias to protect a monarchy, and the story continues. Yeah. So mistrust of standing armies, like the one employed by the English crown to assist in controlling what were then colonies before the United States of America, and concerns with centralized military power, Well, that really colored the debate surrounding ratification of the federal constitution and the need for a bill of rights. So brief history side trip here, the constitution as we know it today preceded the bill of rights. And in plain speak, the bill of rights was rather a compromise negotiated settlement. If I may characterize it that way to say, okay, we'll put some extra stuff in here to address some of the concerns that we left out of the original constitution. And uh, there's no, nothing nefarious there, nothing at all. So provisions in the constitution gave Congress power to establish and fund an army as well as the authority to organize, arm, discipline, and call forth militia in certain circumstances all the while reserving to the individual states the authority over the appointment of militia officers and training. So each state or colony could do its own thing in terms of training and appointing officers, but a central government gave that authorization. So the motivation for these provisions appears to have been recognition of the danger of relying on inadequately trained soldiers as the primary means of providing for the common defense. Ah, so now that's a little different. It's beginning to sound like the motivation here was perhaps to ensure having enough defense against threats beyond our national boundaries. So the color of this has changed. Yeah, yeah. And we want to have not only the national army, if you want to talk that, or military Which, force. at that point in time was preciously small. Yeah, we need to have that beefed up. Yes. So we need to have local and state militias, armies. Lee, I'm still waiting to hear anything about 
individual right to own a gun. I haven't heard anything about that <laughs> yet. yet. We'll kind of follow through on this and see if anything comes up about an individual's right to own a gun. Yes. Okay, so let's go on here. However, despite structural limitations, such as a two-year limit on Army appropriations and certain militia reservations to the states, fears remain during the ratification debates that these provisions of the Constitution gave too much power to the federal government and were dangerous to liberty. James Madison argued that the state governments, with the people on their side, would be more than adequate to counterbalance a federally controlled regular army, even one fully equal to the resources of the country. Oh. Hmm. So we're, we're concerned hmm. with the with, uh, feds coming in and telling the states what to do. What to do. What to do. In Madison's view, the advantage of being armed, together with the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached and by which the militia officers are appointed, forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form can admit of. Nevertheless, several states considered or proposed to the First Congress constitutional amendments that would explicitly protect arms-bearing rights in various formulations. Hmm. Tasked with digesting the many proposals for amendments, oh, that, that never changed, I guess. There's always a zillion amendments, <laughs> right. right? Made by the various state ratification conventions and stewarding them through... The first federal Congress, James Madison produced an initial draft of the Second Amendment as follows. Okay, so this is the first draft. Okay. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country. But no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Ah, hmm, that's interesting. Yes. So it appears the discussion was very much centric to a balance between militias at a state level and a federal army and a balance of power between the states and the feds. And, oh, we'll throw in this deal where it's kind of like if if your religion says you don't want to serve in in either army, you don't have to. It's the original conscientious objector. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So the committee of the House of Representatives that considered Madison's formulation, they altered the order of the clauses such that the militia clause now came first with a new specification of the militia as composed by the body of the people, and they made several other wording and punctuation changes. Now, as resolved by the United States House of Representatives on August 24 of 1789, the version of the Second Amendment sent to the Senate remains similar to the version initially drafted by Madison, with one of the largest changes being the reordering of the first two clauses. So that may sound like big deal. They changed a couple of sentences around. No, 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 no. Critically important. The provision at that moment in time read, a well-regulated militia, composed of the body of the people, being the best security of a free state, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Everything has always got to go to the committee. Always got to go to the committee. (laughs) And we're going to put that state's rights militia thing front and center. Yeah. Again, not not hearing the individual's right it just hadn't come up yet, yet, I guess. It's just all states and, and the feds. Yeah, it sounds very technical at this yeah. point. Yeah. So the amendment 
would take what would become its final form in the Senate, where the religious objector clause was finally removed and several other phrases were modified. For example, the phrase referencing the militia as composed of the body of the people, that was taken out, and the descriptor of the militia as the best security of a free state was modified to necessary to the security of a free state. Several other changes were proposed and rejected, including adding limitations on a standing army in time of peace and adding next to the words bear arms the phrase for the common defense. The final language of the Second Amendment was agreed to and transmitted to the states for ratification in late September of 1789. There's nothing in this description, again, from an extremely reliable source that goes into detail about the discussions and how it started and how it ended up. There's nothing in that that describes individual X, individual Y, have the right to bear arms. Right. It's all about militias at a state level, yes. and it's about states' rights versus federal rights yes. and having a balance between those two. And it's about both having the, the total defense— against external enemies Mm -hmm. and it's then well what if this new federal government that we've just started and we don't really know how it's going to go what if they get out of hand we want to have some counterbalance to that yes with state militias yeah absolutely that's what this was about that's what this was about (laughs) and frankly an acknowledgement that hey we're just kind of a startup country here we don't have the resources to put together a strong standing army yes so this needs to be a supplement yes yeah so there, there get to be all sorts of things attributed to the original intentions of the Second Amendment. Oh, this is called adding complexity. Yeah. Or it's just, I'm going to take something that is my advocated position, and I'm going to extract little words and phrases out of that, and I'm going to completely change the context in which those words were used. Yes. And I'm going to bring them forward and suggest that the context of them should be the position I'd like. And the key phrase here in 2023 and for the previous several years, the phrase right to bear arms is the pivot point. Right. Yeah. Right. And the context of that is gone. Originally was state militias. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist anymore. And again, we're not a startup country right. anymore. Right. So if, if somebody wants to have something happen, or they have a certain position, they can certainly state that. Yes. Please use the right context or just suggest that that's what you think. Yes. You know, and the notion of going back and changing the meaning and intent of something to advance your argument, that's not good for any of us to do. That's right. You know, so yeah. so it, it does beg the question of, uh, Lee, how united have we really always been? And I, I love looking at this history because it shows, no. Nah, we, we didn't know. It's, as you said, we were a startup. Yeah. And we're doing all these kind of precautions because I really don't trust you. Yep. We're doing it together, but I really don't trust. It's like a merger and acquisition yeah. thing. Oh, that's know? a great comparison. Yeah. <laughs> company X and company Y. And well, we don't really know how you guys roll yet. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're going to put in some safeguards. The business climate is suggesting we need to be together. <laughs> right. But I really don't necessarily even want to be with you. Yeah. But it's the best option. Yeah. So we'll merge. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the conflict of cultures. I love it. And, uh, you know, how, how united we are when the presumed threat is both inside and outside our borders. And I love the history lesson here with this because it kind of tried to cover both. It's it kind did. of like, well, we're doing this thing together called the United States because we have this fear of this outside mm-hmm. enemy, but we don't trust each other. Yeah. You could take any industry and look at companies that have merged and look at who their main competitor is 
And you could say they put together their merger to protect and compete against mm-hmm. you know this outside mm-hmm. competitor in their industry, but they also do things to make sure that mm-hmm. things inside the, co- the new company work. It's just fascinating. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So let's fast forward now to what Dave promised us several minutes ago, a discussion about gun control. Yes. So the context of our discussion today is very different from the balance of, quote, state military power versus federal military power, okay, and the national capability to defend against outsider borders types of threats at the time the Second Amendment was getting finalized. Yeah, the original motivation, as we've said, for the Second Amendment was around ensuring a balance of state military power versus federal military power and then a national capability to defend against outside our borders types or threats. Where are we today with those considerations? It's, it's really interestingly because uh, we've been a country now for over 200 years and kind of how we operate in foreign policy is pretty well defined. Yes. And those things have ebbs and flows and partners change and who, who uh, the competitor is has changed over time. But we've got a rhythm to that mm-hmm. and have as a country had that for a couple of hundred years. Yes. Okay. That, that seems to be cool. We have had the Civil War which was the sad and terrible conflict that almost tore the country apart mm-hmm. uh, with so many lives lost. And that was, again, the, the big example we've had of state versus federal yes. conflicts. Right. The thing that's always interesting to me now is we will talk about the conflict in the country today, and we will go, you know, red states and blue states, and it's like that, that's almost hearkening back to a Civil War view of of where people stand politically and it's just completely inaccurate yes it's completely inaccurate so you would look at actually how the map looks in terms of of uh where people's allegiance tends to be on different issues and it's much more of kind of a rural versus urban versus urban with suburban kind of in the middle of that and lots of times kind of being the swing of you know what a state's leaning is but kind of the notion of we have these clear geographical boundaries that are at a state level and these states disagree with those. It's nonsense. Right. That's, that's not how any state is set up. Right. It doesn't work that way. Uh-uh. No, that's uh-uh. a mythology that's grown up. Yeah. Let's go back to 1883, shall we? The first patent for the automatic rifle was issued in 1883. Oh, now we're going to get into guns, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, let's get into guns. I threatened to get into guns. <laughs> now, by World War One, which was approximately 30 years after 1883, machine guns were fully automatic well, by that time. We've had automatic machine guns. For 150 for over, years. For over, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well over 100 years. Right. Not a new Not a new deal. Weapon. Not a new deal, okay. Assault rifles which is a term believed to be coined by Adolf Hitler, were first put into production in World War II. We used to not allow private ownership of such things as assault weapons. You mean we haven't always Mm -mm. said it was fine just for private citizens to have assault weapons? No, we've not always had that idea. Really? No. Really? No. In 1994... These things, the the term of which was coined by that wonderful human being, Adolf Hitler? (laughs) Yeah. The paragon of virtue? Yes. Yeah. In 1994, Congress adopted the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which made it generally, quote, unlawful for a person to manufacture, transfer, or possess... A semi-automatic assault weapon. 1994, we said no. 
people shouldn't be allowed to own those things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Prior manufactured assault weapons were not subject to the new law. Okay, if you already got one. Yeah, you, you, it's yours. We're not going to grandfather it out yeah. of your hands. Yeah. The Senate vote was 61 to 38. The House vote was 235 to 195. The ban on semi-automatic assault weapons expired in September of 2004, a mere 10 years after its original enactment. So, Lee, we now have guns and, and weapons of all kinds that are completely beyond what existed in 1787 yes. at the drafting of the Second Amendment. Yes. And so not only do we have this complete disconnection between what the actual issues were when the Second Amendment was getting drafted and the notion of an individual's right to bear arms, mm -hmm. the world that we live in is completely different, completely. particularly the world of weaponry. And they could not have even imagined it. No. Uh, so does that change our interpretation of what the intent would be today of this amendment to the Constitution. And where is the line on weaponry today? Okay, where is the line on weaponry today? Well, what about making missile launchers legal privately? So you and I can go down to our local missile launcher store and buy a couple. Well, and somebody would go, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let... We wouldn't let an individual citizen okay, right. do that. Okay, let's take missile launchers out of the discussion then. How about a grenade? Well, why? I mean... Why would you do that? I mean, because know. the neighbor's dog barked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. How about Molotov cocktails? Ooh, don't even need to buy that. I can make one of those homemade. Yeah, come on, Lee. We're getting ridiculous. I mean, it's yeah. fine. It's fine to have an assault weapon. Right. I mean, who doesn't need that? Right. An assault weapon, you know. Like grenades and missile yeah. launchers and things assault of that nature. Assault weapon that could yeah. kill 20 people in a, in a minute or two. Yeah. I mean, you need that. You do need that. Yeah. So our yeah. question here is where the hell should now, the line be now drawn? Now as I'm thinking about it, a grenade, I don't know. A missile launcher? Yeah. What's the difference? What's the difference? What is the difference in that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. So the question is where should the line be drawn in fairness? What is the principle or principles or the legal reasoning behind that line and why? So what is the picture of the future that our current laws and culture are leading us toward. And is that the picture we feel that we want? It's a blank sheet of paper. If we are just saying, hey, what, what should it be? Let's go identify what that is. And obviously we're being highly satirical here with all the nonsense about Molotov cocktails and grenades in case anybody's wondering. We were being satirical and it's, it's just, it's nutty. It's nutty. And we have and we have no picture or image of actually what we're trying to accomplish as a society with all these individual decisions and our own opinion is so many positions on these issues are fear based. Oh, and yeah. they're trying to strike fear into us. And we would say, as one example, well, one of the reasons that you would theoretically want to advocate for having a lot of guns is it would make everybody safer. You know, it actually would increase safety. Mm -hmm. And so we've now seen history that has shown that uh, we have increasingly gotten more and more in love with private gun ownership and, you know, to extremes. And I guess what I would expect, Lee, would be out of all of that, you'd have something like uh, life expectancy mm -hmm. that would be getting better. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah. because having, Everyone's safer. having this proliferation of guns has made everything safer. Right. And so life expectancy is going to go up. Oh, great. Well, good. 
Well, let's move on to, uh, let's see if we can kind of confirm that that's actually what's happened here. Right. There was a great article in NPR that was called uh, Live Free and Die? Question mark. And it's about the sad state of U.S. life expectancy. Whoa, I don't like the title of that. That sounds like, hmm. are they going to say that life expectancy is going the other direction? Mm, that's oh, the, that's huh. the vibe I'm getting. Okay. Selena Simmons Duffin is the author of this March 25th article in NPR. Yeah, so let's read a bit of Selena's article. Just before Christmas, federal health officials confirmed life expectancy in America had dropped for a nearly unprecedented second year in a row, down to 76 years. Whoa. While countries all over the world saw life expectancy rebound during the second year of the pandemic after the arrival of vaccines, the U.S. did not. Then last week, more bad news. Maternal mortality in the U.S. reached a high in 2021. Also, a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association found rising mortality rates among U.S. children and adolescents. This is the first time in my career, quote, that I've seen an increase in pediatric mortality. It's always been declining in the United States for as long as I can remember, said the paper's lead author, Stephen Wolf. Now it's increasing at a magnitude that has not occurred at least for half a century, end quote. Across the lifespan and across every demographic group, Americans die at younger ages than their counterparts in other wealthy nations. Let me repeat that one. Across the lifespan and across every demographic group, Americans die at younger ages than their counterparts in other wealthy nations. So there's an important asterisk to include in this. These trends were happening long before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. Yes. Okay. Did that contribute to the issue? Certainly it did. Globally, yes. not just in the United States. Right. The trends were clear before COVID-19 ever existed. So we can't hang any kind of disclaimer on it. Well, it's an anomaly because of COVID. There is no asterisk, no. as we'll talk about here. No, no. Yeah. So uh, one group of people are not surprised to hear this at all. Wolf and the other researchers involved in a landmark study 10 years ago with a name that says it all, shorter lives, poorer health. The results of this study showed convincingly the U.S. was stalling on health advances in population while other countries raced ahead. In the years since then, the trends have only gotten worse. American life expectancy is lower than, are you ready, that of Cuba, that of Lebanon, that of Chechnya, Americans are used to hearing about how their poor diets and sedentary lifestyles make their health bad. It can seem easy to brush that off as another scold about, hey, eat more vegetables, get more exercise. But the picture painted in the Shorter Lives report could shock even those who feel like they know the story. Quote, American children are less likely to live to age five than children in other high-income countries. And it goes on. Even Americans with healthy behaviors, for example, those who are not obese or who do not smoke, appear to have higher disease rates than their peers in other countries. The researchers catalog what they call the U.S. health disadvantage. So at this point, I'm sure your mind and our mind is going, okay, what's, what's going on here? And the fact that living in America is worse for your health and makes you more likely to die younger than if you lived in another rich country like the UK, Switzerland, or Japan, there's data that actually shows that even the top proportion 
of the U.S. population does worse than the top proportion of other pro- uh, other populations. And that authors say, we were trying to just say, look, this is an, an American, American problem. problem. Right. Yeah. 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 So the panel looked at American life and death in terms of public health and the medical care system, individual behaviors such as diet and tobacco usage, and they also looked at societal factors like poverty and inequality, the physical environment in which people live. And then finally, they looked at public policies and cultural values. Quote, in every one of these buckets, we found problems that distinguished the United States from other countries. Can you say that one more time? In every one of these buckets, we found problems that distinguished the United States from other countries. Yes, Americans eat more calories and they lack access universally to health care. But there's also, are you ready? Higher childhood poverty. There's racial segregation. There's social isolation and more. A big part of the difference between life and death in the U.S. and pure nations is people dying or being killed before they are age 50. The Shorter Lives Report specifically points to factors like teen pregnancy, drug overdoses, HIV, fatal car crashes, injuries, and violence. So the report went on to say that, among other things, quote, two years difference in life expectancy probably comes from the fact that firearms are so available in the United States. So they have done studies, again, all these comparisons in their 400-page report, to try to extract variables yes. and factors that are causing different things. And they looked at these five groups, and they have identified that firearm availability is probably responsible for about two years of that difference. Now, lest you be thinking two years, that seems relatively insignificant. On a population or statistical base of this gigantic size, that is a huge difference. The average two. of everybody is two years. Yes, it's a gigantic difference. Yeah. There's also the, as the study pointed out, the opioid epidemic. That's clearly a an American yes. issue primarily. Yep. And that was our drug companies in other countries didn't have that because those drugs were more controlled. Whoa, 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 whoa. Those kinds of drugs are more controlled, controlled in other countries? Do we all know that? Yeah, I don't think do we, we do. Do we all know that? Or, or is the image lots of times that the, there's this incredible control for safety here Mm-mm. that there is not in other places. Maybe maybe need to rethink that one. Yeah, huh? exactly. Yeah. So some of the difference comes from the fact that we're more likely to drive more miles. So that's where fatal car accidents enter. Mm-hmm. We have more cars than most other nations and therefore ultimately more fatal crashes. Now I wonder, and we're not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, I wonder if the advent of electric vehicles will have implications there to the good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, the National Academy of Sciences said, uh, when we were doing it, we were joking, we should call it the live free and die <laughs> report, which used to be the, well, still is the New Hampshire slogan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah live free and die. Well, it's live free, live free or, or die. die. <laughs> Not live free and die. That's a, that's did, a different they slogan. Little, they did a little tweak on that one, yeah. So the National Academy of Sciences said, that's outrageous, that's too provocative. We're not going to put that in the title of our report. Pro- probably a good call. Yeah. yeah. There are some things that Americans do get right, according to this report. Quote, the U.S. has higher survival 
after age 75 than do peer nations. Whoa. And it has a higher rate of cancer screening and cancer survival. The U.S. has better control of blood pressure and cholesterol levels, therefore lower stroke mortality, lower rates of smoking than historically, and a higher average income per household. But those achievements, it's clear, are not enough to offset the other problems that befall many Americans at a younger age. So this is fascinating. They're saying that once you hit 75... In the U.S. In the U.S., you're going to live longer yeah, you're ahead than of you are your in these peer, countries. You're ahead of the game in peer countries. And they're also saying that because so many more of us die... Before we get to that point, mm-hmm. the math of, of the fact that now you're going to live a little bit longer, well, a bunch of us didn't. Right. We're gone. Yes. And so those that are 75 and older will live longer. Yeah. And I love thinking about this, and again, this one cause among many, but I think it's fascinating to think about where money gets made in, in the medical and health profession right. with certain actions that get taken at certain ages. Where is the most money get made in the profession, I would be almost certain to say, I'll put it out there, that it happens with keeping people alive. Yeah, prolonging life. Prolonging life. And so is it a surprise, given what we know is a huge emphasis here in the United States of, you know, I'm 90, but I'm going to, boy, I'm going to make sure, and those procedures wipe people out because of how expensive they are to go do. And how much money gets made on preventive at young ages, mm-hmm. how much money gets made on on birth situations, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, certainly not that kind of money. Right. And so I'm not attributing all of it to that, but you do wonder about our emphasis here as a society about, uh, yeah, live free. Mm-hmm. We're all on our own. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily have the sense of social responsibility that exists in some other countries. Right. And here's the implications. Where the value systems might be more united or more coherent. Here's the implications in life expectancy. And so it's one of those where I imagine, Lee, um, a football game, you know, and two teams are playing. And, you know, my team scored 14 points and your team scored 17. I said, yeah, but I still won. Yeah, right. Well, why, why do you think you won? You had 14 points. Well, I got to call my own plays. Yeah. I got to do what I wanted to do I, on I the football more freedom. field. The coaches weren't in my headset. Yeah, and you don't you don't think that you you lost because I scored seventeen and you scored fourteen? No, no. I just feel better. Right. It's like it's nonsense. That's, that's nonsense. It's just nonsense. <laughs> so all of this costs our country tremendously. Not only do and for those of you living outside the United States, I'm referring to the United States because we're Americans. Not only do families lose loved ones too soon, but having a sicker population costs the country as much as a hundred billion every year in extra healthcare costs. This is from this study. So break that huge number down. Yeah, it'd be about three hundred dollars per person per year. Wow. Yeah. Could use that. So the National Institute of Health should undertake. The authors were saying a thorough examination of the policies and approaches that countries with better health outcomes have found useful and that may have application with adaptations in the United States. Huh. So in other words, they're saying, let's figure out 
what they're doing that works in other places. And we should do that here. Oh, we're always receptive to that, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Going someplace else to tell the United States, States what to do. To do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Does the U.S. actually have the humility to do that? That may be another conversation for another day. Yeah. So Wolf, the principal author, calls it a misconception to assume that America's great scientific minds and medical discoveries translate to progress for the health of the population. Quote, we're actually very innovative in making these kinds of breakthroughs, but we do very poorly in providing them to our population. So that's interesting. There's an access issue there, an equivalency issue. If I'm uber rich, I might be able to afford a real innovative technology that will prolong my life another year, but that's not going to be available to 99% of the population. And we don't see the connection with with other people doing well. We don't understand how that benefits us, us lots of times. And other people doing well, other people being in good health, other people having enough money always comes back in spades yes. to, to the whole society. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not necessarily our culture to do that because, well, if they want that, they can go out and make a million dollars too. Right. You know, right. That's, that's their problem. Yeah. It's like, well, it's really our, our problem. problem. Yeah. 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 The secretary of health and human services said, there are so many things that we're doing. We can't touch everything. We can't touch state laws mm -hmm. that allow an individual to buy an assault weapon and then kill people, we can only come in afterwards. International studies are not the flavor of the month. They never will be, came out of the study. The problem with foreign countries is that they're not in someone's congressional district. district. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. So going outside of the country to kind of say, gee, somebody else is doing this way better. How do we know they're doing it better? They're living longer. Yeah. What are they doing? Let's go ahead and steal. You know, in, in business leave, it's been so common all of these decades to have best practices. Yeah. Let's go see what our, somebody else is doing. What some, what's the competition? It's doing? called benchmarking. What's benchmarking. Let's go see what they do. And let's go ahead and very appropriately adopt all of those things instantly. Why try to figure all of that out ourselves? Let's right. see. Uh, we don't necessarily have the culture. In terms of our nation versus nation stuff. To yeah, it, our value system perhaps just doesn't permit that. So yeah. it's more than a missed opportunity, says the author of the study. It's a tragedy. If you add up the excess deaths that have occurred in the United States because of this problem, it dwarfs whatever happened during COVID-19, as horrible as that was. We've lost many more Americans cumulatively because of this longer systemic issue. And if the systemic issue is not addressed, it will continue to claim lives going forward. So we're going to have loved ones that we're going to lose that we're going to lose in the future because of this stuff. Absolutely. The important point about the U.S. health disadvantage is not that the U.S. is losing a competition with other countries, but that Americans are dying and suffering at rates that are demonstrably unnecessary. So, rather than feel overwhelmed at the immensity of the problems, the focus should instead be on the fact that every other rich country has been able to figure out how to help people live longer, healthier lives. That means Americans can do it too. He believes, the author, that the changes might not be as hard as some policymakers and health officials seem to think. Quote, you look at these healthier countries, they're free countries, England, France, Italy. They're not banning delicious foods. They're not chaining people to treadmills. 
Americans love to travel to Europe and to Australia and to Canada to enjoy the wonderful food and lifestyles. And so the idea that we might say, hey, maybe we could bring some of those lifestyles back to the U.S. I don't think people are going to go up in arms that we're taking away their freedoms. Getting policy ideas from other countries is just an obvious move. Quote, if a Martian came down to Earth and saw this situation, it would be very intuitive that you would look at other countries that have been able to solve the problem and apply the lessons learned. <laughs> we, even an alien would see that. Even an alien. <laughs> and, and we do this in so many other ways. You know, we do this best practices thing in other ways, and we just don't do it here. So in historical research that's been done, quote, I found that there are dozens and dozens of countries on almost every continent of the world that have outperformed the United States for 50 years. It's worth taking a look at what they've done and Americanizing it. You don't have to take it right off the shelf. So some of the policies that were identified are universal, better coordinated health care, duh, strong health and safety protections, broad access to education, Duh. And more investments to help kids get off to a healthy start. Mm -hmm. Duh. These policies are paying off for them, he says, and good for Americans, too. And, of course, as you might guess, listeners, I added all the does. The authors did not actually say that. Those were not in the report itself. So let's turn our attention to what we call the power of hope. We've been talking about some fairly weighty topics. The power of hope. We should always have hope. That's our belief even with the inevitable dementors that are out there oh, in those, our life. Those pesky dementors. Damn again. dementors. <laughs> They're out there in our life, world, society. Let's look around. You can see them in your life and in the world clearly. Let them pass through you, Harry Potter fans. Let them just go through you, and they won't do you harm if you preserve hope. Hope will remain. Hope is an incredibly strong, powerful force. Hope is in and it is a critical part of the change process. So the promise of hope also exists in lifelong learning. So what we're saying here is, we've given you a lot of information today. Make your own linkages, but don't lose hope. You know, these big things, we want to say again, they can be changed. So we always like to close with a moment of optimism, momentum, and gratitude. Mm -hmm. And on this one, we want to reflect on the optimism of taglines and new models Hmm. and coming up with something completely new that again can replace the tweaking and the incremental stuff that doesn't ever seem to get us anywhere. And getting lost in the complexity and losing sight of the simple. And particularly on something like, you know, the second amendment and gun control and all that very complex issues and basically go, I think we're trying to stay alive. That's part of our point here. Life expectancy is the ultimate score. Yes. So we've got some thoughts about that, right? Taglines do help. Yeah. And we've seen taglines with on things like equality. We've seen taglines on civil rights. Mm-hmm. The tagline women's lib or women's liberation from decades past. Yes. Feminist movement, things like that. Those are very important taglines. Mm-hmm. People know what they mean. They're a picture. We know what we're trying to do. So a couple of taglines we're suggesting. The equalist movement. We've yes. said that before. Equality for all and the hope that we can all be equal no matter who we are and what we do. And we also would put forward the Love First movement and the hope that a lot of us can create a community that has a primary spiritual belief of putting love before all else. That's something that I think 
so many people in the globe are connected on if you ask them. Yes. Say, no, love comes before everything. Yes. Well, that's that's a community. Absolutely and it is. And that's a movement. Yes. And let's put that forward and not let the complexity and the complication of all the religious dogma and other beliefs get in the way of understanding the clarity of that one statement. So Beautiful. There's a couple of taglines for us. So we'll end here with a quote. And our quote is from author and futurist Robert Anton Wilson. And he says, the future is up for grabs. It belongs to any and all who will take the risk and accept the responsibility of consciously creating the future they want. So let's close our conversation today with the questions we ask every time. What are your ideals? What are your pictures? What are your actions to take? And what is your powerful individual influence to use? Thanks for listening. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. As always, feel free to explore more about Pictures Out There at picturesoutthere.com and major social media sites. We hope you have the day of your dreams, the day of your pictures. <laughs>